Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, journalist Dan Sinker and author Annalee Newitz sat down to talk about Annalee's novel, The Future of Another Timeline. This week, we honor Ray Bradbury's recent centennial on August 22nd with more science fiction. The prolific writer John Scalzi talks about his novel, The Consuming Fire, how he wrote it in just two weeks, and his affinity for wombats. Yes, wombats. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. For those who are here, uh, new to the American Writers Museum, it includes not just historical figures we all studied in school, but all the writers whose words shaped our understandings of the world around us on a daily basis, including the great authors of fantasy and science fiction. Tonight we welcome an author Kirkus Reviews called Almost Insufferably Good. One of the most read and acclaimed writers of sci-fi in the past decade. John Scalzi's New York Times bestsellers include The Lost Colony, Fuzzy Nation, and Red Shirts, one of my favorite. The latter winning the 2013 Hugo Award for Best Novel. He has written nonfiction books and columns on diverse topics such as finance, video games, films, astronomy, writing, and politics, and served as a creative consultant on the TV series Stargate Universe. He also writes every day on his long-running blog, The Whatever, and on Twitter about travel, photography, pets, pie, and the million and one things that can be called a burrito. (laughs) He's a strong advocate for diverse voices in his chosen field, and we're pretty sure he's the only writer in this museum who's ever taped bacon to a cat. So please help me in joining and helping me welcome John Scalzi. First, I'd like to issue a correction. Uh, Theodore Dreiser was known to tape bacon to his cat. I'm just the first to have done it on the Internet. I I want to make sure that's very clear. Second of all, I'm about to take a picture of you all so that we can put it up on Twitter later. Uh, So on the count of three, wave one, two, three. There we go. You all blinked. (laughs) We knew that would happen. Um, Hold on one second. Wait, no, don't. uh, Stop. What are you doing? Don't back. Just no. Computers are dangerous, just so you know. So are phones. This is my new phone because my old phone bricked itself on the first day of the tour. And I spent five minutes just staring at my old dead phone, trying to will it back into life. And the person who was traveling with me, she says, you look like you broke out in a sweat. It was terrible. And 90% of me was like, no, this is horrible. This is the worst possible time for this to brick itself. It is the first day of the tour. I need all of my information that is on the phone. And the other 10% said, the Pixel 3 is coming out tomorrow. (laughs) My precious. Um, So, uh, hi. Hi. It's really funny because, you know, the, the guy's doing the introduction, and uh, I'm like, they know. They've, like, like, I know, like, half of you, right? <laughs> so it's like, there's like, oh, yeah, we know Scalzi. He's, he's not all that. We're here for pity, and which I appreciate. I will take it. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, tonight I'm going to do uh, a couple of things. Um, this uh, tour I've been going about, this is actually my 10th, uh, book tour ever, which is a lot if you think about it. And I've been doing the thing where I've been, uh, um, usually when I do a tour, I do a reading from an upcoming work and then I read something funny 
uh, and then I um, will read something from whatever. And that's fine because it's not like you guys follow me like you follow the dead or fish or anything like that. Um, so the same lineup every day uh, is not a problem for you. But uh, for me, uh, I've been wanting to keep things fresh. And so what I've been actually doing this tour um, is I have this 10-sided die, uh, and I roll it, and I have a list of 10 things that, um, that, I, will be, that I will be doing. Um, which include, one, read from an upcoming work, two, read from someone else's new work, uh, three, read juvenilia, four, read from whatever, five, speak authoritatively and persuasively for several moments on a topic chosen by the audience, even if I do not know anything about that topic, which means basically improv mansplaining. <laughs> Fingers crossed, right? I mean, if, I, if we don't get to it in the actual event, then we, you can always ask a question. Um, six, read something that will probably make me cry, because uh, I'm a crier. Uh, seven, lead an audience sing-along of an 80s pop song if someone has brought a ukulele or guitar to the event. Has anyone brought a ukulele or guitar to the event? <laughs> Oh, come on, man. I've been telling you guys about this for weeks, so we'll not be doing number seven. In which case, I will tell you the song that I was going to make you all sing with me, which was AHA's Take On Me. Because there is nothing like a whole room of people not hitting that note. Because not only do you not hit that note, because no one can hit that note, right? Even auto-tune can't hit that note. Uh, but everybody misses it in their own idiomatic way. So you have a room of like 50, 60, 70, 100 people all missing it uniquely. And it, it, it's, a, it's a miracle it doesn't shatter bones. Uh, number eight, give a mini clinic on how to write a novel in just number of weeks. Uh, nine, read something funny. And ten or zero on this die, uh, reveal the meaning of life. Now... I know, right? You didn't know that that was going to happen, and yet it's a real possibility. And the first three nights that I did the tour, that came up, and I was like, that's a sign from someone. <laughs> uh, now, because we are at the American Writers Museum, I feel actually like I should uh, talk about something relating to the process of writing and how it all works. Um, so, in fact, I am going to go ahead and do number eight, which is give a mini clinic on how to write a novel in just a blah, 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 number of weeks. Uh, and so that will be fine. Um, but for the other two, um, let's go ahead and roll this dice. Actually, I need somebody here. You come up and roll it for me so that people don't know I'm cheating. <laughs> number five, which is speak authoritatively and persuasively for several moments on a topic... <laughs> Uh, one, which is uh, read from an upcoming work. And because five actually ends real short, because I have a process for that, which is basically I will start talking, you start raising your hand when you're like, that's bullshit. And when the majority of you have raised your hand, then we move on to the other thing. Uh, so uh, number nine, I will read something funny as well as soon as that's done. But to begin, uh, and can I actually borrow your book for a moment there, sir, because you're in the front row. All right, I'm going to talk about... Um, how to write a novel in just a mumble, mumble, mumble number of weeks. Now, first, I want you to guess, using your hands, uh, how many weeks it took me to write this book. On the count of three, raise your hands. One, two, three, go. Uh, nine weeks, no. 
Seven weeks. No. And when you get your numbers, then then lose your time. You're flashing blinky. I have no idea what that means, sir. I'm saying more than ten. No. Uh, four. No. Six. No. Eight. No. Uh, three. No. Ten. I already said no. Put your hands down. Twenty. You put up your feet. Okay, one, you have shoes on, so that's clearly 12. <laughs> Two, no. Uh, five weeks, no. Uh, and uh, somebody here had a number, uh, six weeks, no. You all got it wrong. There we go. Hold up your hand, sir. Not you, him. <laughs> two weeks. What? Yeah, I know, right? I wrote this book in two weeks. I'm sorry, could you say that again? <laughs> I'm not sure the audience heard that one. The, but, I, but yes, the Yelp of indignation uh, trademark is something that happens every time I mention that. Um, and now I'm going to tell you how to write a book of 80,000 words uh, in two weeks. One, this is the first step, um, think that your book is actually coming out in April. <laughs> of 2019, when in fact, it comes out uh, in uh, October of 2018. Two, do not learn that the book is coming out in October 2018 until the pre-order page goes up on Amazon. <laughs> I just kind of look at that and go, oh. <laughs> I guess I should maybe start writing that. So there was that's six months gone from your schedule right there. Now, to be fair to Tor, it may have they may have told me that uh, uh, that they had moved it up on the schedule. But if they had told me that, they told me that while I was writing Lock In, which was the book that was coming out in April. Speaking of which, the uh, book in uh, April you will be doing. Uh, edits for and uh, proofing and doing a lot of prep for your tour, which you will do also in April, which will be a nine or ten day tour. Plus, you are doing other events through April and May, so that keeps you busy. Um, then uh, there's the fact that I don't know if you know this because I don't know if you any of you follow the news, but apparently, the world is on fire. <laughs> Uh, and if you are me, the very first gig that you ever had, or one of the very first gigs you ever had professionally, was writing opinion columns. And so it is literally in your writer DNA to sit there and think about what's going on in the world and then write. In fact, that's why I started writing the Whatever, my blog, which uh, celebrated its 20th anniversary last month, um, it was to keep sharp in the uh, telling people my opinions about things. So... Um, that distracts you because the world's on fire and apparently you absolutely cannot turn away from that. And uh, not only that, um, you know, you feel compelled to write about it. So that gets you through to about June. And the book is due on June 18th at 9 a.m. <laughs> and it's June 4th. And you've written maybe the prologue of the book. So there's about... 80,000 words to go. Um, so you turn to your wife and you say, this is how it's going to work. 
I'm going to live in my office every couple of hours. You're going to shove food under the door. Once a day, come and retrieve the jug. <laughs> to which she responds, one, you will pee like a normal human. <laughs> yes, you will. Yes, indeed, you will. And then everything else you will do. So, uh, and so literally from uh, basically July or June 4th through June 18th, just wrote every day about 8,000 words a day uh, and just cranked it out. Now, here's the thing, though. When I say, and this is where we begin the actual really interesting part of this, which is when I say that I wrote this in two weeks, what I actually mean to say is that I typed it in two weeks. Because at once I finished The Collapsing Empire, which was the book uh, that was the prequel to this one, I started writing this book because I ended it on a cliffhanger and one I knew if I didn't resolve cliffhanger things you would all burn me you know not just like an effigy like you would have would have brought charcoal briquettes to the evening uh, and uh, it would have been very toasty for me but I started thinking about where are these characters going what is going to happen to them how is this going to happen uh, how does this make sense uh, and so every day when I wasn't writing head on I was thinking about uh, the consuming fire. And um, one of the things that they like to tell you about writers is that when a writer is looking out a window, they are writing. It's not always true. Sometimes we're just looking at a squirrel, okay? <laughs> but in fact, what happens is so much of what is writing is sitting there just thinking about things. And every writer, if you ask them, um, will tell you the time where they spend writing that you wouldn't think that they spend their time writing. Like I spend, uh, I do the majority of my writing in the shower, right? The shower is a place where you're just standing there, water's hitting you. Sooner or later, you have to get clean. That's part of the deal. But most of the rest of the time, you're just sitting there and you're not doing anything else but standing there. And because I'm not doing anything else other than standing there, my brain wanders and it problem solves. And it thinks about the things that I have just painted myself into a corner to when I'm writing and how to solve it, how to fix it, some of the things that I'm thinking about for this book and the book beyond it and the book beyond it. So basically, I one, I take 40-minute showers, which is really good that I don't live in California because otherwise I'd go to shower prison because they're very, very uh, tight about uh, water stuff. But I live in Ohio. We have tons of water. Um, so I just sit there and I think. And so... Doing that is, is my way of writing. Some people write while they go on long drives. Some people write while they do the dishes. Some people clean their house obsessively, even when it doesn't need to be cleaned, because that keeps their body active while their brain is going off and doing the other thing. Um, so much of what is writing is not sitting there typing. So much of it is thinking. Now, you have to have some bit of ordered thinking to it. You can't just let it wander. You have to actually pay attention to what your brain is saying, file it away later, so that when you come to a point where all of a sudden, holy crap, you have to write 8,000 words a day, every day, for 14 days, uh, that you can actually come back to what you have done uh, before, the work that you have done before. The other, re the other way that I was able to do uh, or write this book in two weeks um, is that I have written 
13 other books, or 13 other novels. And so what that meant was the muscle memory of writing novels was sufficiently advanced that um, things like pacing, things like ending chapters on cliffhangers, things like making sure the characters are responding believably to each other, those were all muscle memory. It's just like a guitarist who's doing the scales all the time, who plays certain songs all the time, so that when they have uh, cause to improvise, every tool that they need has already been there, has already been developed. Um, this was the same for me. I didn't have to worry about whether or not I could write a novel. I had done it plenty of times. I'd even written novels fairly quickly. Red Shirts was written in five weeks. Um, Fuzzy Nation was written in six weeks. So the speed was... It was a little weird, but it was something that I had done before. But because I had done that before, it allowed me to do, uh, do that. If this had been a first novel and I had tried to write it in two weeks, it mostly would have been gerunds and screaming. So <laughs> fortunately, that was, not, that was not a problem here. But the muscle memory of, of writing and having not only just written novels, but having written uh, basically every day of my life for the last 30 years made it possible to do this. Um, the final thing that made it possible to write this in two weeks and which absolutely should not be overlooked um, is the fact that um, the people at Tor, uh, who are my publishers, um, had my back. They knew that this was coming in hot. They knew that I, I had basically asked them, what is the absolute last minute that I can get this thing in? And they were like, June 18th? Seven or nine o'clock in the morning. Basically, when Patrick Nielsen Hayden puts his ass in his chair in, at, at the tour offices, it needs to be there for him. And I was like, okay, actually, he originally said June 15th. And I was like, well, I could get it to you on June 15th, but you would actually hear the screaming in the pages. And it would be at five o'clock, and it's the weekend anyway, so give me the weekend. And he's like, oh, fine. So, June 18th. Um, but they knew it was coming in hot, and they had prepared. So their, the copy editor, Deanna Hoke, uh, knew that she was going to have to do a tight schedule. The page proofers knew that they were going to have to do a tight schedule. Everybody was prepped and ready to go so that when it came in, we could immediately turn it over. Um, and that, that says two things for me. One, it's great to work with people who know what they're doing and can just really, uh, you know, really turn that key and get it done. The other thing is, is that that meant that they actually had faith that when this showed up in uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden's queue, that it would be ready to go. That I had done my part of the bargain and uh, made it something that they could immediately put into copy editing, make it something that they could immediately put into page proofing uh, right after that. So they, they were telling me, essentially, that they trusted me to stick the dismount. And it may sound like a, a small thing, but no, uh, the fact that you have an entire crew of people who are like, we got you, you know, and we believe that you are actually going to do this for us um, makes a real difference. It gave me the, it gave me the faith that um, I could actually pull it off. I turned it in at 7.30 on June, uh, on June 18th. I went and slept for three hours, and then I realized I was too tired to sleep. Um, so I went downstairs, and I started watching TV. Uh, I put on Teen Titans Go, right? Because I figured that that was about the speed my brain could handle at that particular moment. 
10 minutes later, I turned it off because it was just too many colors, right? <laughs> Chrissy tells me, because I was kind of in a fugue state, uh, Chrissy tells me that she could tell it like, literally took a week before I was back at full brain power, right? Because my brain had just turned into pudding. Um, and so I, I turned it in. And then, of course, immediately, as soon as I turned it in, I'm like, why haven't you told me what you think yet? You know, <laughs> it's been 15 whole minutes since I've turned it in. You probably haven't even showed up, but I need to know now. Sure, I waited until the absolute last minute to turn it in, but you need to reassure me now because I'm just freaking the hell out over here. Uh, a couple days later, Patrick uh, got back to me and uh, he said, this is great. It may be even better than the first book. And my two reactions to that were like, one, great, because the muscle memory and everything else did actually work, and I was managed to pull it off. The other reaction I had was, oh, no, this isn't good. I have not been uh, punished for bad behavior. <laughs> because I want to be very, very, very clear. Do not do this. This is a terrible terrible idea. I would not be telling you that I did this if I hadn't already seen the, the trade reviews and that they were all good, right? <laughs> I mean, I want to be very blunt. The fact that, you know, the trade reviews were like, hey, it's Scalzi doing Scalzi, so if you like Scalzi and you're Scalzi, this is the Scalzi. <laughs> that's pretty much basically what the reviews were. They were like, yep, that's what he does. That's what you come to Scalzi for. You know, it's everything that he is and absolutely none that he's not. And I'm like, great, I'm a type. Um, <laughs> congratulations, me. But the fact that they were like, nope, no, that, that nobody could tell that I had written it in, in two weeks and just made me like be able to tell you. And, but that's the other really important thing is you can't tell how long these take us. Um, you just don't know, right? This one was two weeks. Um, the um, Head On, which was the previous book that I wrote, took me a year to write for much the same reason. The world was on fire, um, and I just wasn't able to, to figure out what I, what I was doing. Um, which reminds me, the other secret was I finally... Uh, acknowledged much in the way that uh, someone who joins a 12-step uh, group does, that I was powerless over Twitter, uh, and that my life had become unmanageable. And I actually, for those two weeks, I had a, a piece of software, it's called Freedom, which blocked Twitter, blocked Facebook, blocked Reddit, blocked all the news sites. So every time I did that thing of, I'll just check, see what's going on in the world, it was like, no. And I'm like, <laughs> Damn it, what do you mean, no? The world needs to hear from Scalzi. No. The world didn't need to hear from Scalzi. And so now when I'm writing, I from 8 until 12 every day, I use that software to block out the Internet because, quite honestly, I can't help myself. You know, I'm just, I'm almost 50 years old. That behavior, uh, you know, is never going to change. So I just have to accept the fact that I need, you know, the blocking software to go, no, you should actually be doing your work. So, um, but again, you can't, you can't tell reading lock-in or excuse me, reading head-on or reading the consuming fire, how much time it took. All you can tell is whether or not the book, uh, was written. And I think that's important because, um, at the, at the end of, at the end of, uh, of the day, what really matters is that we give you writers, give you something that you can enjoy. If it takes us two weeks, 
it's really ill-advised, but fine. If it takes uh, two years, that's fine too. Ultimately, uh, the proof in the pudding um, is in the reading. And I will finish this part of the thing by telling you a story, which was uh, that I told Mary Robinette Cole, who is one of my best friends, um, about how long it took me to write this thing. Um, while we were traveling from San Jose to Albuquerque uh, between uh, Worldcon, uh, and where I came in second to Nora, uh, to Nora Jemison, and richly so, uh, I'm super excited for her, uh, and, uh, and when we were co-guests of honor at the Bonacon, which is in Albuquerque. And in, we had two stops along the way because she had a new book coming out, and we were uh, basically doing a, a mini tour for that. And so I told her about this, um, and I was like, don't tell anyone. And she was like, oh, no, of course I won't. And so we're at uh, the uh, Cocteau Cinema in Santa Fe, which is uh, George Martin's um, uh, cinema where he does author events. And we're doing a mutual sort of interview thing. And uh, apparently she forgot that I told her not to ask, apparently. Uh, and she's like, so, John, tell everyone how long it took you to write the book. I'm like... <laughs> Because I, well, the reviews hadn't come out yet. I didn't want it to, you know, I was like, uh, it took me two weeks. And she's like, and how many words was that? And I was like, well, it was uh, like 80,000 words. And then over here, from the corner, I hear, I hate you. <laughs> it was George. <laughs> so there you go. That's that story. So that's how you write a book in two weeks. Uh, the next thing is apparently I'm reading from an upcoming work. So I'm going to do that right away. Uh, I've got to pull up my uh, tour readings. So uh, as many of you know, I have a ridiculously long um, contract with tour books. Uh, it's 13 books over 10 years, um, which is a lot and a long time. Uh, and that was really surprising to me. My, my agent and I, uh, I think in 2015, were like, we want Tor to give us a long-term contract, maybe like five books or something like that. So I came up with 13 uh, story ideas or, or novel ideas, um, a combination of stuff, you know, like another Old Man's War book, another book in the Lock-In series, this series, which became the Interdependency series, um, plus some other new stuff. And we said, and we basically went in and we were like, so here are 13 things. Uh, and, you know, pick however many you want and let's get this done. And they're like, okay, we'll take all of them. <laughs> and I was like, okay, uh, you're aware that three of them are meant to be young adult books. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. And I'm like, and you're also aware that those of those three YA books, two of them are not meant to be science fiction or fantasy at all. And they're like, we don't care. We don't want you writing for anyone else. <laughs> Which was simultaneously affirming and a little bit creepy. <laughs> but the, the thing I like to say is that they liked it so much that they put a ring on it. So this is the, this is the tour ring. Uh, and uh, there's a story about this, and at least two of you in the audience were here for this uh, story, so you can back me up on this one. Um, 
so I'm over again at Mary Robinette Cole's place. She's having a uh, winter uh, gathering uh, of friends, and my wife and I had come to uh, the event, and I had just gotten my ring, and I put it on. And I was not being, like, obnoxious about it. I was, like, not doing, like, could you pass the butter, please? Thank you. <laughs> But I had it on. Uh, and so we're talking and we're doing all this sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, um, Lynn, oh, I'm blanking on her last name. But I've only known her for seven years. Lynn Thomas of, of Uncanny Magazine. I am so sorry, Lynn. There was one time I was introducing my wife to somebody. And I was like, Bob, this is my wife, Christine. And this is why I tell people, if I blank on my wife's name, and I've been married for her, to her for 20 years, I'm going to blank on yours. It's not personal. It's just bad wiring. Too much Coke Zero. Um, but, uh, but, um, but Lynn Thomas like, grabs my hand, and she's like, you have a tour ring. And then everybody just looks at the tour ring, and I'm just like, yes, I do. And, and, and Wes Chu is like, I want a tour ring. And... Fan of, fan of Wes over here? Uh, and I was like, well, fortunately, Patrick Nielsen Hayden told me the story that I could tell you uh, when you say you want a touring. He says if you, if you get a 13-book, uh, 10-year, $3.4 million contract with, the, with Tor, you get a ring, too. So I was like, fine. Now, as it happens, uh, just this last year, um, uh, v, uh, Victoria Schwab got a multi-book uh, multi-year seven-figure contract with uh, Tor as well, and she asked for and received a ring, uh, Tor ring. And uh, when she got it, she immediately felt a little weird about it, uh, and she because she knew that I had one, and she was worried that I would be like jealous, and I would be like, "No, there can only be one," and then it would be all Highlander, where we'd be like, <laughs> "Yeah." So she sends me a picture of it and says, I have this, is that okay? And my immediate response to her was, oh my God, the next time we meet, we are going to click them together like the Wonder Trends. <laughs> bing! And so literally every time I see her, if she's got the ring on, there's a bing. So I'm going to see her, I'm going to see her in, uh, at the, uh, next, this su- next Sunday in uh, Texas for the Texas Book Festival. And we're going to click them together and we're going to have a wonderful time. Um, so, but anyway... Uh, like I said, the thing, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be writing YAs, uh, which I'm really excited about because I love YA, and, and so many of my friends write YAs, and I think it's just a very exciting uh, field, and it's something that I've always been interested in doing. Uh, and in fact, Zoe's Tale was originally kind of meant to be a YA, uh, but then we put it through the adult sales channel, so it's not really officially one, but these will be. And I'm going to read to you uh, from one of those. This is an upcoming book uh, that is called School for Hostages. And the idea behind this is there are international crime syndicates, you've heard of them, and uh, the international crime syndicates are mostly have criminals in them. But occasionally they need civilians. You need mob lawyers, you need mob doctors, you need mob accountants, mob bakers, you know, that sort of thing. Um, now, if you're a criminal, you know not to cross the criminal uh, conspiracy because they will shove you into a 55-gallon drum and drop you into Lake Michigan, right? But if you're a civilian, you are susceptible to things like the FBI um, or Interpol or anything like that. Um, so in order to uh, enforce compliance and to make sure you don't rat on the international criminal conspiracy, uh, here's what happens. You are a mob doctor. You're your newly hired mob doctor. Congratulations. And, um, and so your 
teenage child gets a um, gets a acceptance into uh, a special private boarding school, really cool private boarding school, on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, where they will stay basically through their entire high school uh, uh, career. And should you ever flip on the international criminal conspiracy, congratulations, your child has won an internship and they're never heard from again. So effectively, these kids are hostages to make sure that you don't do anything you're supposed to do. Um, and so when this story begins, our, our hero, uh, Nate, uh, is uh, his father has is a doctor has lost his license they're kind of on the ragged edge of existence and Nate does a thing that uh, helps propel the series of events that allows him to eventually end up on this uh, at this rich and snooty private boarding high school on an island in the Indian Ocean and I should note that I in many ways have ba- based this um, high school on my own high school, which was not on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, but was a rich and snooty private school uh, of the sort that the freshman biology class had a scanning, tunneling electron microscope, that uh, it has its own accredited paleontological museum on campus, and should the Hittites ever attack, we have a bronze foundry. (laughs) I am not kidding. This is all very, very true. Matter of fact, uh, my uh, I'm wearing I'm wearing my uh, high school uh, sweatshirt. As a matter of fact, Web. They're always very excited when I wear this. This always goes into the alumni photos. So please send that off. Take that picture now. So here is School for Hostages, Chapter One. So where to begin? No, I mean that. I have no idea where the right place is to start with this story. Do I give a detailed background about being born and growing up? Do I skip ahead to my mother's death and my dad's professional downfall? Detail my and my dad's slide from almost rich to very definitely poor? Or do I just move ahead to when I almost broke Josh Gomez's arm on the first day of school? You know what? Let me start with almost breaking Josh's arm. Spoiler. It wasn't intentional. I didn't wake up that day with a plan to break his arm, I swear. But Josh is kind of an asshole, and he was about to pummel my friend Teddy into hamburger. The way it started was, Teddy and I were sitting in the back of Mr. Ray's AP English just before the bell. I was checking the news on my phone. Teddy was looking at Josh, who was near the front of his class, broing it up with all his bro friends. It is not fair, Teddy said. He was sitting on top of his desk. What's not fair, I asked. I was in the chair of my desk because that's how desks are designed to be used. Life, generally, I didn't look up from my phone. We already knew that about life. You're going to have to be more specific. Specifically, that I'm five foot two with acne and a club foot, while Josh Gomez is six two and built like a side of beef, a very attractive side of beef, which is even more unfair. I glanced over at Josh, who was talking to his Hamilton High football teammate, Ramon Garcia. Josh was, indeed, really good-looking, if you like dudes who look like they were carved out of meat. That's not the unfair part, I said. 
Oh, God, what's the unfair part? Teddy asked. The unfair part is that in addition to looking like Channing Tatum's stand-in, Josh can do math as easily as you can tie your shoe. He is not just an athlete, he is a mathlete. <laughs> Teddy shot his eyes over to me. Never use that word again. <laughs> we, go to a te- we go to a magnet school, Teddy. Mathletes abound. Teddy grimaced at this and glanced back at Josh. That is unfair. So unfair. I was talking to Renee yesterday, and she says that he's being recruited by MIT for math and by USC for football. That's probably accurate. Who do you think is recruiting him for being an absolute chode of a human being? Dartmouth. (laughs) Which I thought was a pretty good joke. Sorry if you went to Dartmouth. And the first night somebody had gone to Dartmouth, and they were in the audience going, Hey. Come on. Their partner was laughing. They, they had gone to Brown. So, which I thought was a pretty good joke, but Teddy was already moving on. I'm being recruited, too, you know, by Nevada State College for wiffle ball. Dream big, Teddy, I said. Teddy waved in Josh's direction, which brings me back to my point about life being unfair. I watched Josh laugh and slap on his pal. He's peaking in high school, I said. Teddy snorted. Come on, Nate. He's going to go to USC, then to the NFL, then marry a supermodel and get a job running CERN. Then one day he'll run for president. Meanwhile, I'm going to be the jerk who says, yeah, I'm the guy President Gomez used to stuff into a trash can in high school. And that doesn't sound bitter at all. Years ago, just before Teddy and I met, his dad sold his startup to Yahoo for a couple hundred million dollars. And yeah, on one hand, Yahoo is where technology startups go to die, but on the other hand, a couple hundred million dollars. So Teddy, currently moaning about the unfairness of life, was going to be just fine. He knew it, and I knew it if he made it out of high school alive, that is. Whether that was going to happen was an open question. Why that was an open question was people like Josh and how Teddy responded to them. As if on cue, Josh looked over at Teddy, probably because Teddy had been gesturing so dramatically at him five seconds earlier, and gave him the patented Josh Gomez once-over, the look that made you feel like you were being dressed out for slaughter. Then he said, hey, Freeze, trying out for cross-country this year? Teddy slapped his knee. I get it. That's supposed to be funny because I have a gimpy leg and I can't run. That is hilarious, Josh. Can I try now? Hey, Josh, are you this year are you trying to be anything other than a sphincter on top of a neck? See, this is what I mean about Teddy. He is five foot two, has a club foot, and he doesn't give a crap about any of that. Snark on him, he will snark back. Shove him into a locker, he'll take a clump of your hair with him as he goes in. It's kind of admirable, but it's also kind of dumb. Or would be if he didn't have someone running interference for him. Which, hi, I'm Nate. Josh stopped smiling when Teddy made his retort. Someone like you shouldn't be insulting someone like me, he said. Someone like him, Josh? I said, what does that mean? Josh turned his attention to me. 
You stay out of it, Gideon. I'm talking to your pal, not you. Oh, Nate, you see what he did there, Teddy said to me, but never taking his eyes off Josh. By this time, everyone in the room had quieted down, watching Josh and Teddy square off like predator and prey doing their first dance steps. It's okay for him to insult me because he's built like livestock, showing off to the rest of the steers in his herd. But when someone like me claps back, suddenly his masculinity gets all fragile. Shut it, Freese. Josh growled. No, really, he growled it. Teddy, being Teddy, did not shut it. Just curious, Josh, he said. What's the actual weight requirement to be able to insult you? 200 pounds? 250? Let me know so I can start the steroids to get up to the minimum. Josh took a step toward Teddy. You clearly didn't hear me, Freese. You started it, Josh, I said, trying to draw his focus, it, which worked. Nobody asked you, Gideon. My point is, it would be nice if for once we could get out of the first day of school without you threatening harm to someone just because your insults didn't work the way you wanted them to. Josh glared at me, and I held his gaze and didn't do anything else. And here's the thing. I'm not a six-foot-two slab of football muscle like Josh. I don't have a first-class math mind like he does either. But he and I have danced around more than once and more than once because of Teddy. It wasn't an unfair fight. Not because I was a great fighter. It's just, well, Teddy's dad is worth a couple hundred million dollars. Josh's dad is one of the top criminal lawyers in Vegas. Both of them have their lives from Hamilton High planned out in detail and on an upward trajectory. Me? I don't have that, and I don't have that much to lose. And when Josh and I had danced around before, I think I made that clear to him. When you do that, you end up not having to dance nearly as much. So when Josh was glaring at me and I was staring back, and we were both really kind of talking to each other, negotiating, and somewhere in there I think Josh decided that he was going to back down. It was the first day of school, after all. There was the whole rest of the year to deal with Teddy or not. He was ready to let it go for now. Of course, the thing about steroids is they shrink your balls to the size of raisins, Teddy said to Josh, but I bet you already know all about that. Josh yelled and pushed his way down the row of desks to Teddy. I took my right foot and hooked it around the right back leg of the desk directly in front of mine. Josh was already cocking back his arm. I was waiting for him to hit the right spot on the floor. When he did, I kicked the desk in front of mine directly into his path. I wanted to stop his advance on Teddy and bring his attention back to me. I got the first part. But then Josh's momentum got him tangled up in the desk, and he went down and put his arms out to break his fall. And they did. Then Josh clutched his arm near his wrist and started to moan. It was Teddy, of all people, who came up to Josh and kneeled down to get a look at the damage. Then he looked up at me. Holy crap, Nate, I think you broke his arm. Which made it a perfect time for Mr. Rays to come into the room to start class. He was looking at his phone when he came in. Then he looked up at the scene in the room, saw Josh on the floor, Teddy over him, and me with my leg on the desk in front of me. Oh, come on, he said. You assholes couldn't even wait for the first bell, could you? There you go. Um, 
I'm really looking forward to finishing that. I've got about 20,000 words on it, uh, and uh, we'll be finishing that up probably in the next year. Uh, I'm going to turn it into my editor, Patrick, um, who will almost certainly say, it's fine. Um, then I'm going to give it to Miriam Weinberg, who actually reads YA and loves YA and has edited YA, and she's going to go over it with a hammer, uh, which I think is exactly what needs to be done, uh, because YA is not the same as adult fiction, uh, and if you try to approach the same things uh, the same way, it's not going to work. So um, I'm actually looking forward to Miriam coming back going, I have notes. <laughs> And getting that fixed, we'll see how it goes. So the last thing that I was supposed to do, and it's 7.20 now, so we're uh, running out of time, and then we'll go to the straight into the question and answer, uh, is that apparently I'm supposed to be speaking uh, authoritatively and persuasively for several moments on a topic chosen by the audience, even if I don't know anything about the topic. So uh, we need somebody here, not you. <laughs> I just had dinner with you. I, I know your trouble. Uh, to think of a topic, any topic. And now here's the thing, which is when you say that, then I'm going to start. And when what I've said just strikes you as absolutely ridiculous, just raise your hand. We'll just keep going until, until there's a majority of you with a raised hand. So we'll see how far I can take it, make it sound reasonable. You, uh, what was your topic? Wombats? It's actually really interesting that you mentioned wombats. <laughs> Because I know quite a lot about them. Actually, in high school, my intramural uh, team was the Wombats. And it was the, 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 it was the team that was actually part of Jameson Dormitory, which is the dormitory that I uh, was uh, living in at the time. That was my sophomore year. And so obviously, because I was uh, a Wombat, I needed to learn something about Wombats. And here's what I learned. One, they're from Australia, which is uh, down on the other side of the planet. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's kind of an obscure country. Australia tried to kill me once, but that's not important. It wasn't a wombat that did that. Um, but they are, so they are Australian, they are marsupial, uh, and they are one of the few animals along with the platypus that has, or mammals, which are mildly venomous. Uh, and it's one of those things that, uh, that people are like, I've never heard of that before, but here's the thing. The, it's not, uh, like when you think of vi venom, you think about it injecting with teeth or something like that, or in the case of the platypus with the actual, um, the, the little spur at the back of the leg. Um, with the wombats, it's actually in their saliva. And so what happens is in order for them to uh, paralyze a prey, with their with their venomous saliva, they have to run up to it and several times and just slobber the hell out of it. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no. I've actually seen this on National Geographic. There was a special on the wombats. And it was just fascinating because here's this mother wombat uh, with, you know, the little baby wombats in the pouch, right? Just running up to this koala. Just everyone's like, <laughs> running back, coming forward. <laughs> and the thing about koalas is you can't really tell when they're like stoned or poisoned or not because they're kind of slow moving anyway. They're the sloths of the marsupial world. Um, but eventually the thing fell out of the eucalyptus tree, which the wombat, by the way, had to climb up <laughs> in order to slather it with saliva. <laughs> what? The cube shape? No, that's a myth. <laughs> that's a myth. And, and quite frankly, I'm appalled that you are perpetrating this. 
This is why you actually need to talk to experts, people who really know about the wombats. For example, myself. All right, you got me. All right, that's that. This is the problem because I've actually found that people will put up their hand. They're like, no, you're digging a hole. I want you to see how much further you'll go. So I took the accumulation. Like, you know, They are not, in fact, venomous. They are poisonous. If you eat one, you'll get a very bad stomach ache. So with that note, I'm going to let you come over here and tell us how we're going to do the signing of that. And also, thank you all so much for coming out to see me tonight. You've been wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week to hear from Isabel Ibanez, who presents her acclaimed debut young adult fantasy novel, Woven in Moonlight. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.